is music notes and more with your host, Jason Ginty. The Who find tragedy in Cincinnati. The Rolling Stones find tragedy at Altamont. Fire inspires Deep Purple. It's Ozzy's birthday, and John Lennon gives back a medal. There's a lot to cover for the week of December 1st, so let's take a look back in music history. It was this week back in 1983 that Neil Young was sued by Geffen Records because his new music for the label was not commercial in nature and musically uncharacteristic of his previous albums. What? Yeah, well, his latest album called Everybody's Rockin' featured a selection of rockabilly songs. He did some covers, and he did a few original songs on the album. Now, the album was only 25 minutes in length. It was Young's shortest album to date. So, his record label sued Neil Young for basically not sounding like Neil Young. Weird, right? Well, these things happen. You see, Young said, look, all my music comes from all music. I'm not country. I'm not rock and roll. I'm just me. And all these things are what I like. So Neil Young countersues, claiming his contract gave him complete artistic freedom. Well, there was a long, messy war of words between the label and Neil Young, and the suit eventually settled with Geffen Records apologizing to Neil Young. Now, the label would go on to release a couple albums from Neil Young, and following the completion of his commitment to Geffen, Young returned back to his original record label called Reprise Records, and he continues releasing albums on that label today. The great John Densmore was born this week back in 1944. Of course, you know him as the drummer for The Doors. They had the hits uh, Let My Fire Break On Through, Riders on the Storm, This Is The End, all that stuff. Anyway, Densmore one time allowed the song Riders on the Storm to be used to sell Pirelli tires in the United Kingdom and only in the United Kingdom. Now, later on, he regretted it, and he said that he heard Jim Morrison's voice in his head and ended up donating all the money earned to a charity. Now, in 2002, Densmore vetoed an offer by Cadillac for $15 million for the song Break On Through to the Other Side to be used in one of their commercials. Densmore vetoed because of Morrison's vehement opposition to licensing The Doors music for commercial use. And he stuck to his guns. You don't hear Doors music in a commercial even today. There was a photo shoot that didn't go quite exactly as planned this week back in 1976. You see, Pink Floyd were having pictures taken for their album called Animals. And the cover uh, shoot was taking place at Battersea Power Station over in London. And they had a giant inflatable pig lashed between two of the structure's tall towers. Now, they were prepared because they had a trained marksman that they hired, who was ready to fire and shoot the pig, the inflatable pig, out of the sky if it escaped. But that day, it wasn't needed to have the marksman on duty because everything went as planned on the first day. Unfortunately, the following day, they had to take more pictures, and the marksman, well, he hadn't been rebooked. So, <laughs> unfortunately... The inflatable pig broke free from its moorings and was able to float away because it was filled with helium. Well, eventually, 
a short time later, it landed in the city of Kent, which was a few miles away, where it was recovered by a local farmer. And the farmer was pissed because it had scared the hell out of all his cows, which apparently is a bad thing to have scared cows running around your field. This week back in 1978, Rod Stewart had the number one song on your radio with his song, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Uh, It was his fifth number one. Now, (laughs) as with everything, it seems, uh, there's always going to be trouble. Now, here's the problem. It went to number one, which means a lot of money is going to be paid to the artist, right? Rod Stewart should have gotten even richer off the song, but he didn't make a dime. Here's why. A plagiarism lawsuit by Brazilian musician Jorge Benjor confirmed that the song had been derived from his composition or his song called Taj Mahal. So Stewart realized uh, he made an error and he agreed to donate all of his royalties from the song Do You Think I'm Sexy to the United Nations Children's Fund or UNICEF. And Stewart also performed the song at the Music for UNICEF concert at the UN uh, in January of 1979. So he has his huge hit, and he doesn't make a dime. But he does good by donating the funds to charity. Back in 2012, Led Zeppelin received a very prestigious award from President Barack Obama for their significant contribution to American culture and the arts. They're all dressed up in their black suits and their bow ties. Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, and Jimmy Page were among a group of artists who received Kennedy Center honors at a very fancy dinner event at the White House. Now, in his tribute to the band, President Obama said, quote, When Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, and John Bonham burst onto the musical scene in the late 1960s, the world never saw it coming. Now, the president did go on to thank the former band members for behaving themselves at the White House, given their history of hotel rooms being trashed and mayhem all about. This week, back in 1969, the Rolling Stones recorded the song Brown Sugar at Muscle Shows Studios in Alabama. Now, the single went on to be a number one hit, of course, and the song was written by Mick Jagger with Marsha Hunt in mind for the song. Now, you see, Hunt was Jagger's secret girlfriend and the mother of his very first child. Now look, great song, right? But have you ever listened to the lyrics to Brown Sugar? Here you go. Gold Coast slave ship bound for cotton fields. Sold in the market down in New Orleans. Scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right. Hear him whip the women just around midnight. Yeah, those are some brutal lyrics. In fact, the lyrics are so bad that today Mick Jagger changes them during live shows. This week back in 1979, a concert by The Who at the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati turned to disaster when 11 members of the audience were trampled to death after a stampede to claim unreserved seats. Another 26 fans were injured. Now, the concert was using something at the time called festival seating, where seats are available on a first-come, first-served basis. Now, this concert was a sellout, with over 18,000 tickets sold. And the majority of these tickets, about 14,000, 
were unassigned general admission seats. Aha, yes, you can see where the trouble is going to come from, right? Well, a few hours before the show, quite a sizable crowd had already gathered outside the front of the uh, arena. There was about 7,000 people who were already there by 7 p.m. lining up. Now, entry to the arena was through a series of individual doors all along the front of the arena, as well as a few doors on each side. Now, the crowd focused at each of the doors. Of course, you line up by the door. Well, the doors were not opened at the scheduled time. And what's this going to do? It's going to piss people off. It caused the crowd to become increasingly agitated and impatient, completely understandable. Now, during this period, the WHO undertook a very late sound check. Now, the crowd assumed that the WHO ended up going on stage earlier than scheduled. And at that point, the entire crowd surged and pushed toward a couple of doors that were actually open. And this caused numerous people to get trampled while some suffered even serious injuries. 11 people were unable to escape the dense crowd pushing toward them and died by asphyxiation. 26 other people reported injuries. Now, the concert went on as planned, with the band members not told of the tragedy until after their performance. They were obviously pissed and upset about what went down. The following show in Buffalo the next night, Roger Daltrey told the crowd, quote, we lost a lot of family last night, and this shows for them. The families of the victims sued the band, the concert promoter, and the city of Cincinnati. The class action suit filed on behalf of 10 of the families was settled in 1983, awarding each of the families of the deceased about $150,000, which is like $400,000 today. 11 weeks after the concert took place, the television show WKRP in Cincinnati aired a very special episode called In Concert, showing some of the show's characters attending the concert and then learning afterwards of the deaths. And then they showed their reaction to having helped promote it on the radio station. I remember watching that episode going, whoa, this is pretty damn heavy, heavy stuff. I didn't realize at the time when I was a kid that it was about a real event. Anyway, on December 4th, 2019... Recently, uh, actually 40 years after the tragedy, The Who just announced that they would be performing in Cincinnati for the very first time since the show in 1979. The show is scheduled for April 23rd, 2020. In 1986, Judas Priest were sued by two families alleging that the band were responsible for their sons performing a suicide pact and shooting themselves after listening to Judas Priest records. Now, the parents and their legal team alleged that a subliminal message of do it, do it, do it had been included in the Judas Priest song called Better By You, Better Than Me from the Stained Glass album and alleged the command in the song triggered the suicide attempt by the boys. The suit was eventually dismissed. The great Ozzy Osbourne was born this week back in 1948. His real name is John Michael Osbourne. Of course, you know him as the singer for Black Sabbath, numerous solo albums, and of course, a star of the Osbournes MTV show. Now look, I don't have time to go into all the dumb shit he's done over the years, but of course, some of his antics in the 70s and 80s 
marked him as the ultimate rock and roll party animal. So it's no surprise that he has left quite uh, a mark uh, <laughs> on rock and roll history with some of the craziest stories of hedonism and over-the-top adventures ever known to man. Now, many of these stories are well-known, such as the time he bit a head off of a live bat by accident. And now, most Aussie fans know about the time he took a piss on the Alamo Memorial while in drag, as well as the time he snorted a line of ants in front of Nikki Six of Motley Crue. Well, he once got arrested for burglary. And while paying his debt to society, Ozzy discovered the time-honored tradition of homemade prison tattoos. And using sewing needles and great polish, he tattooed smiley faces on his knees. And he said, quote, it helped to cheer me up when I woke up every day where I could look down at my knees and see smiley faces. In 1981, Osborne made a deal with CBS Records to begin his solo career after his departure from Black Sabbath. Now, according to Osborne, he had gone to the meeting with several doves hidden in his pockets with the intention of letting them go once he'd signed the deal. Kind of a cool thing and sort of a peace offering with the record label. Well, however, in true Osborne fashion, he was so intoxicated that he forgot his original plan and decided instead to bite one of the dove's heads off and spit it onto the table. Yeah, let's just say he signed the deal before he bit the head off the dove. Back in 1981, Osborne was invited to a meeting in Germany with a head of CBS Records Europe, where he jokingly performed a striptease and kissed the record executive. At least that's what he thought he did. Later on, he found out that uh, he'd been so intoxicated that he'd actually done a Nazi goose step across the table, dipped his balls into the record executive's wine glass, and then took a piss into it. Yes, Ozzy does not behave well at record meetings. But of course, the record labels can look the other way and tolerate his antics because in the course of his career, Along with either Black Sabbath or his solo records, he sold over 100 million albums. This week back in 1971, the Montreux Casino in Switzerland burnt to the ground during a gig by Frank Zappa. Now the incident is immortalized by Deep Purple's song called Smoke on the Water. You see, in 1967, the casino became the venue for the Montreux Jazz Festival, which was the brainchild of music promoter Claude Nobbs. Now, on the night of the fire, Nobbs saved several young people who, thinking they would be sheltered from the flames, had hidden in the casino from the blaze. Now, a recording of the outbreak and fire announcement can actually be found on Frank Zappa's bootleg album titled Swiss Cheese Slash Fire. Deep Purple Smoke on the Water still played on classic rock radio today, constantly, just be sure you don't pick up a guitar in a guitar store and play the song. This week back in 1971, Led Zeppelin started a two-week run at number one on the album charts with the Four Symbols album, otherwise known as Led Zeppelin IV. Of course, it features the eight-minute track called Stairway to Heaven. Now, the album stayed on the U.S. chart for one week, short of five years. 
selling over 37 million copies so far. And it was this week back in 1980, two months after the tragic death of drummer John Bonham, that Led Zeppelin made a decision to break up. The surviving members decided that it was not right to tamper with their legacy by bringing someone else in to play drums. In a statement, the band explained their decision. Quote, We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect we have for his family, together with the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager, have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. They did go on to reunite uh, for the Live Aid concert in the 80s, and of course their uh, famous reuniting with Jason Bottom on drums in the early 2000s in London. This week back in 1993, Frank Zappa died of prostate cancer. Now Zappa recorded a bunch of albums with the Mothers of Invention, as well as solo recordings, including the 1969 album Hot Rats and the 1974 album Apostrophe. Zappa recorded one of the first concept albums as well, called Freak Out, released in 1966. It was also one of the earliest double albums in rock music, although Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde preceded its release by one week. When he got married in 1967, he had four children, and their names are Moon Unit, Dweezil, Ahmed Amuka Rodan, and Diva Thin Muffin Pijin. Frank, one hell of a creative dude, even with his kids' names. It was 1968 when the Rolling Stones released the album called Beggar's Banquet, their seventh studio album. And for the album, which included Street Fighting Man and Sympathy for the Devil, the Stones had gone to great lengths to toughen their sound and banish the haze of psychedelia. And in doing so, they launched a five-year period in which they would produce their very greatest records. It was this week back in 1969 that the Rolling Stones played a free festival at the Altamont Speedway in California, along with Jefferson Airplane, Santana, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Now, the Rolling Stones had a big fan. His name was Meredith Hunter, and he was stabbed to death as the group played, uh, and he was stabbed to death by Hell's Angels, who had been hired to police the event. Now, it's claimed that Hunter was waving a revolver. And that's why the Hells Angels went on to take the revolver from him and then stab him numerous times until he was dead. One other man drowned, two men were killed in a hit-and-run accident, and there were two babies born during this festival. Now, look, there were a bunch of things that went wrong at this event. First of all, the promise of a free concert by a popular rock group, which rarely appears in the country, the Rolling Stones, that's going to draw a large crowd. They also announced the site of the concert only four days in advance. Promoters changed the location of the major free concert with the Rolling Stones 20 hours before the concert. And the new concert site was right next to a giant freeway. 300,000 people showed up. The grounds were barren, treeless, desolate. Promoters didn't even bother to warn neighboring landowners that hundreds of thousands of people were expected. 
And keep in mind, the people showing up were going to be long-haired, hippie, drug-drinking rockers. And a lot of people back then didn't like long hair or rock music, especially the neighbors. There were also only about 1 60th of the required toilet facilities available. So people were pissing in nearby fields, in cars, everywhere you can imagine. And the stage, that was located in an area that was completely surrounded by people and their vehicles. It was hard to get to for the artists. And the stage was low enough to be easily hurdled and they didn't secure a clear area between the stage and the audience. Plus, <laughs> to pile on some more, they had a very unreliable, barely audible, low-fidelity sound system. Oh, and they had the Hell's Angels be the security guards. By the way, the Hell's Angels are classified by numerous police and international intelligence agencies as one of the big four motorcycle gangs, along with the Pagans, the Outlaws, and the Banditos. And they contend that members carry out widespread violent crime and organized crime, including drug dealing, trafficking, in stolen goods, extortion, and are involved in prostitution. Yeah, the people that put the concert together thought it would be a good idea to have the Hell's Angels as a security force. Well, while they were acting as a security force, they were using it as an excuse to beat the shit out of whomever they wanted and didn't like. It was a tragic day. It was a tragic weekend because there were a lot of horrible factors that went into the Rolling Stones' performance at Altamont. This week, back in 1988, Roy Orbison died of a heart attack at age 52. Of course, you know him for his song Pretty Woman and over 20 other top 40 singles, including Only the Lonely and Crying. Now, he formed his first band in 1949, and he was a member of the Traveling Wilburys uh, with Bob Dylan, George Harrison, and Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. And of course, they had their 1988 hit, Handle with Care. Now, Roy Orbison endured quite a deal of tragedy in his life. His first wife, Claudette, died in a motorcycle accident in 1966. And a couple years later, two of his three sons died in a house fire. This week, back in 1967, Otis Redding went into the studio to record the song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Of course, the song went on to be his biggest hit. Unfortunately, Redding didn't see its release because he was killed three days later in a plane crash. Now, Redding wrote the very first verse of the song under the abbreviated title Dock of the Bay when he was hanging out on a houseboat in California a short time after his appearance at the Monterey Pop Festival. Redding's familiar whistling heard before the song's fade out at the end was the singer just fooling around. He had intended to return to the studio at a later date and add words in place of the whistling. This week back in 1977, inventor Dr. Peter Carl Goldmark was killed in a car crash at age 71. Who? Why am I talking about him? Well, here's why. Because Goldmark 
invented the long-playing micro-groove record, or as you know it, the 33 and one-third RPM phonograph disc. Yeah, the standard for incorporating multiple or lengthy recorded works on a single disc. He invented this in 1945. That went on to revolutionize the way people listened to music. So that's right, your vinyl collection is due to inventor Dr. Peter Carl Goldmark. The MBE Medal is a British order of chivalry. It rewards contributions to the arts and sciences, work with charitable and welfare organizations, and public service outside the civil service. Now, in 2005, the MBE Medal that John Lennon returned to the Queen was found in a royal vault at St. James Palace. Now, John Lennon returned his medal in November of 1969 with a letter accompanying it saying, quote, Your Majesty, I am returning my MBE as a protest against Britain's involvement in the Nigeria Biafra thing, also against our support of America in Vietnam and against his song called Cold Turkey Slipping Down the Charts. With love, John Lennon. In 2016, Greg Lake, who fronted both King Crimson and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, died at age 69 after a battle with cancer. Now, one of the founding fathers of progressive rock, the band combined heavy rock riffs with a classical influence. And they scored a bunch of hit albums with uh, pictures at an exhibition, trilogy, and brain salad surgery. And Lake had his solo hit, I Believe in Father Christmas. It's perfect for this time of year, right? Now, here's what's very interesting about the situation. Jimi Hendrix actually considered joining ELP, which was what they called themselves, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, ELP, in their earliest incarnation. And if Jimi Hendrix had actually joined ELP, the band would have been known as H-E-L-P, or Help. Luckily, he didn't join that band and went on to do some okay things on his own. Music Notes and More is written, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty, and is brought to you by Pirates of the Quarter Tours in New Orleans. It's the most unique walking tour of the French Quarter in New Orleans. Get the details at piratesofthequarter.com. And be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, check out my YouTube channel.